today. One of them is Gino, and normally he'd be doing what I'm gonna do. But he told me to say, Sandy Pedrotti would not be speaking if I did not give her my endorsement. So we didn't just like find somebody. <laughs> this little person that he asked to come and speak to us this morning. And I'll say from what I know about Sandy, and I actually asked a friend of hers a moment ago, I said, what, what are some words that describe Sandy to you? And she said, faithful. And I thought, that's what describes Sandy to me also. And passionate for Jesus. And Sandy, I know this is always hard to say this about someone and then they have to come speak, but truly she is one of the most humble people that I know. Her heart is just that Jesus be known. Yes. So we, we're so glad she's here this morning. Sandy, come on up. Yeah, please. Sandy. All right. again speak a blessing on Sandy. We ask Lord as the words that come out of her mouth come out that they would be filled with the power of your Holy Spirit and that you would teach us anew and Lord the wisdom that she has prepared Lord would you continue to show that this day and we ask that in your name Lord Jesus. Yeah. Amen. Yes. There was a time when I knew just about everyone at Hope Chapel and I feel a little bit uncomfortable being here because it's not so now. For the past decade, I've been in a kind of a discernment period. And so I'm aware that I don't know certain people the way I wish in order to be addressing you. So it makes me a little bit nervous. <laughs> but um, Abigail and team sang a song that I very much love. Come thou long expected Jesus. Yeah. And um, I mention that because it's a Christmas song most of the time, but Charles Wesley wrote that song to stir longing for the second coming of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. Even though we sing it at the first coming of the Lord, he wrote it to raise our longing for the second coming of the Lord. And that's what I'm here to speak about today, or at least one part second coming of the Lord. On September 8th, uh, you remember that Dan Davis, the founding pastor of Hope Chapel, gave a sermon here on the second coming of the Lord. And in that sermon, he presented four themes that comprise a way of seeing how the Holy Spirit has been at work to prepare the earth for the second coming, to prepare a bride for a bridegroom. And those four themes are these. Number one, revival and conversion of souls. A great harvest of people coming to know our Lord Jesus at the end of the age. Second is the illumination of Israel. A Bible full of promises that God has made to Israel being realized. The third is unity in the body of Christ. A more complete answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we be one as he is one. And all these three leading to the fourth, the culmination of history, the second coming of the Lord, and the resurrection of our bodies. So I'm here to talk about the second of these themes, the illumination. 
about this, number one, because Gino asked me to, but number two, because about 15 years ago, I had piercing revelation about God's enduring love for Israel, which has only grown over these years. Jolene came up to me during worship and said, and quoted another line from one of the songs that Abigail's team was leading, the line that said, open up my eyes in wonder. And that's what happened to me, and it's a story I want to tell you and bring you with me. In this journey of how God opened up my eyes in wonder. In that season, I was meeting with Hope Chapel's elders about midway through my eight years with them. And when I received this revelation, I didn't know what to do with it because I think I had never heard a sermon on this topic at Hope Chapel. So to begin, when I speak about the illumination of Israel, I mean two things. Israel's own illumination to her Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. But also, illumination of the Gentile church to God's enduring love for Israel and Israel's place in his plan. When Paul says that there is a veil over Israel's eyes, a partial blindness, which is spoken of in Romans 11, which we'll look at in a moment, I often sense the presence of a similar veil over our eyes, the Gentile church's eyes regarding Israel. And number two, when I speak about Israel, when I use the term Israel, I mean the Jewish people, not the current nation state of Israel, not the political entity. So this is the story of God opening up my eyes and wonder. In 2003, I took a sabbatical year from my teaching job. And in that year, I had time to listen to the Lord in an unusual way. I had time to attend a Passion for Jesus conference with my friend Elodia. This conference was about passion for Jesus. It never mentioned the topic of Israel. But as I walked through the book tables, I was mysteriously drawn to a single book. Every time I walked past it, it arrested me inexplicably. So finally I obeyed the Holy Spirit and bought it. It was called, Your People Shall Be My People. When I finished reading it, after marking up nearly every page, I sat thinking, if this book is true, it changes things in a profound way for me. Because this book was calling for a Ruth-Naomi kind of relationship between the church and the Jewish people. You remember the book of Ruth. Out of loving devotion, Gentile Ruth left her home and family and followed her mother-in-law, Naomi, to Israel. In Ruth 1.16, but Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And this book spoke of we Gentiles realizing that we are a people grafted into the olive tree that is Israel, and about God's intention, once the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled, to remove the veil from the Jewish people's eyes and
bring them in again so that all Israel might be saved, or at least some major portion of it. And that's the scripture, one of the scriptures in Romans 11 that I alluded to. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. But what I realized was that I wasn't carrying anything like this relationship in my heart at that time. Nor was I looking forward with wonder to Israel's full redemption. On the other hand, I loved the book, The Hiding Place. And this was like that, it seemed to me. Caspar Tenboom, Cory Tenboom's father, hid the Jews in his family's house at the risk of his own family's life because he knew that Israel was the apple of God's eye. And this I could understand. I want to read you that little section from The Hiding Place. This is Corey Tenner speaking. One day, we found the Grota Market cordoned off by a double ring of police and soldiers. A truck was parked in front of the fish mart. Into the back were climbing men, women, and children, all wearing the yellow star. Father, those poor people, I cried. Those poor people, Father echoed. But to my surprise, I saw that he was looking at the soldiers, now forming into ranks to march away. I pity the poor Germans, Corey, for they have touched the apple of God's eye. So we see that in scripture in more than one place. One place is Deuteronomy 32. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land and in a howling waste of wilderness. He encircled him, he cared for him, he kept him as the apple of his eye. And again in Zechariah, for thus says the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. In another few months then, in this same sabbatical year, God beckoned me a second time and invited me to a conference called the Israel Mandate. In one session I'll never forget, a Messianic Jewish teacher named Asher and Trader was highlighting Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, much the same way that Steve Hawthorne highlights it every year. He said the fact that it's presented in all four of the Gospels is a mark of its importance. The crowd who went out to welcome Jesus with cries of, Hosanna! And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
They seemed to know that this was their long-awaited Messiah King. They seemed to know it. But of course, the outcome didn't follow suit, for Jesus was crucified as a criminal. And this teacher finished by asking us in the audience, do you know that Jesus longs to come into Jerusalem again? He loves the time when he will enter again into Jerusalem, this time welcomed by his kinsmen. This time welcomed to be crowned as king forever on David's throne. If you love Jesus, he said, and I know you do, will you love this event that he loves? And those words pierced my heart like an arrow. I loved Jesus tremendously. So much had he done to rescue my life from the pit. The idea of loving what Jesus loved and of Jesus loving the time when he will enter again into Jerusalem this way captivated me. And I felt like a veil was removed from my own eyes. I read with new eyes scriptures like this next one from Luke 13, where Jesus mourns over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus said, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what I saw in this scripture that I hadn't seen before is how Jesus longed for his first coming to be received by his people. How he longed to have gathered them then as a hen gathers her chicks. And how he will come again at a time when they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they will recognize him. Amen. And then scriptures like these next ones had a new meaning for me. Isaiah 9, for instance, which again we hear often at Christmas. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this so that Jesus will be a king on a throne in Jerusalem. And the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And this one in Luke, this one at the beginning of the Christmas story, he will be great, this is the angel, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so I thought, is this part of God's plan to give the lamb who was slain the reward of his suffering? Do you know that phrase? Mm -hmm. I learned that phrase here in Hope Chapel Sanctuary from a story that Dan Davis told about the Moravians. 
Those missionaries, when they left to go to the New World to bring the gospel, they brought their caskets with them, or at least in some stories, some of them did, because they imagined they would never return to Germany. And their banner cry was that the lamb who was slain might receive the reward of his suffering. And so it felt to me like here then was another part of the lamb's reward. Yes. And it felt quite central to me. So then in another few months, a third intervention from the Holy Spirit happened. Now I was diligently pursuing this topic, this understanding of Israel. And one day I was reading a story about the history of the Messianic Jewish movement. I had heard of Messianic Jews, but I didn't know much else about them. So I'm reading the story, and a few pages into it, I'm struck by the beauty of the writing. It feels so lucid and compelling to me. And the Holy Spirit seems to be dancing on the pages as I read. This is literally true. I was having a moment with the Holy Spirit. So I leaped back in my computer to see who was writing this beautiful thing. And to my great surprise, it was a Catholic priest. This was a marvel to me. Because if a Catholic priest was also seeing the essential place of Israel in God's story and in the gospel, this was striking. And it touched me in the place of my Catholic upbringing, in a good way. And a second marvel followed in a few years later when we, some of us, met the same Catholic priest Jack and Debbie were there, Stephen, Mary, and Eubanks, Thomas and Amy, myself. We met him at a missions conference in Hernhut, Germany. And before that conference had ended, this priest, Father Peter Hawken, would become a major mentor to some of us at AHOP, or at Christ the Reconciler now, Lee and Felipe, Michael and Jolene, Lynn, Diane, John Michael, he would become a major mentor to us for over the next decade, quite unexpectedly, but quite sovereignly. <clears throat> Father Peter brought forward an idea about Israel that I have to tell you before we end. And I'm a little worried about this because it goes through some pieces of church history that we aren't that familiar with. So if I'm going too fast or losing you, just wave in our <laughs> try to say it a different way. We aren't so good at church history, I realize. Actually, I think that Catholics are a little better at church history than many of us Protestants because they read the church fathers and they read the stories of the saints. But this is, the, this is what he brought to my understanding and, and really opened my eyes in wonder. The idea of the church being a one new man that we read about in Ephesians. A one new man originally const constituted by a Jewish portion and a Gentile portion. A one new man made of two. And the fact that there is a reemergence of Messianic Jews in our day is almost certainly a sign from the Holy Spirit. Yes. So it's good in looking at 
the scripture in Ephesians 2 to kind of go through slowly through the first part to get the impact of the context. So the first part speaks to us Gentiles. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. We were once far away, but brought near. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create one new man, one new humanity out of the two, two being Gentile and Jew, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. I had read the book of Ephesians many times, but I had not necessarily taken deeply into my understanding that the one new man is made of two parts, a Jewish part and a Gentile part. And again, to really understand the impact of that, it's a good idea to review quickly the history of the Messianic Jews from the beginning of the church until now. So I'm going to way oversimplify this history and go kind of quickly, just kind of an overview. So as most of us know, the church in its first stage was completely Jewish, with Jewish disciples in leadership, all living and worshiping in a completely Jewish way. And at the beginning, the church grew only through new Jewish converts, but especially with Paul's missionary journeys to the pagan world, Gentiles began to come in. So many Gentiles join, as a matter of fact, that an early crisis arises in the church as to how to assimilate them into Jewish life. Wouldn't they need to be circumcised and keep the whole law of Moses? as the Jews did? No was the decision. In Acts 15, in the account of the First Jerusalem Council, we read that the Jewish leaders decided this was not necessary for Gentiles. The fellowship of believers, this new constitution of believers, would be then a one new man, made up of two distinct parts, Jew and Gentile worshiping together, but under differing relationships to the law of Moses. But as the gospel Fred sped, spread <laughs> further away from Jerusalem, more Gentiles believed and fewer Jews. The Gentile-dominant gatherings began to lose connection to their Jewish root. This happened especially after Roman armies destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 70 AD. You're familiar with that history. And also, after the Roman armies crushed Jewish zealots in an uprising called the Bar Kokhba Revolt in 135 AD, maybe we're less familiar with that history. 
Over the years then, from that time forward, slowly some began, some theologians began to interpret these events, these losses in Israel as God's permanent punishment toward and rejection of the Jews. This finally culminated in a serious blow to the one new man identity of the church by the late third century. As a result of the first council of Nicaea in 325, under Emperor Constantine's leadership, statements were issued that both suppressed the Jewish foundations of our church and highly denigrated, highly insulted Jewish identity. I'll read one section from a letter that went forth from the Nicene Council. It was declared to be particularly unworthy for this, the holiest of all festivals, this is regarding Easter, and at this council a determination was made about Easter to remove it from the calendar of celebrating it together with Passover. Easter and Passover were celebrated together for many years in the early church. It was declared to be particularly unworthy that this, the holiest of festivals, to follow the custom, the calculation of the Jews, who had soiled their hands with the most fearful of crimes, and whose minds were blinded. We ought not, therefore, to have anything in common with the Jews. And consequently, in unanimously adopting this mode, we desire, dearest brethren, to separate ourselves from the detestable company of the Jews. For it is truly shameful for us to hear them boast that without their direction, we could not keep the feast, that is, the Feast of Easter. Now some very good things came from this Council of Nicaea. For one, our Nicene Creed. But as a result of this kind of statement that the emperor made from about the fourth century onward, Jewish practice and Jewish identity became oppressed and suppressed within Christianity, though Christianity had begun as completely Jewish. <coughs> and by the time of the Second Council of Nicaea, in 787, Jewish identity was explicitly forbidden in the church and became illegal. Now, how much that was enforced, I cannot say. But there are stories that came later of officials from the church going to the homes of people they suspected were Jews to see that they didn't have any Shabbat candles in their window or they weren't perhaps eating a kosher diet. Now it seems to me then that a warning Paul gave us Gentiles in Romans 11 had been ignored or perhaps forgotten. Again in Romans 11 I read, this is Paul speaking, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior 
to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. Amen. <laughs> so over the next centuries then, in this history of the Messianic Jewish people, when Jewish people came to believe in Jesus, and they did, they joined a church of some kind, but entered completely as Gentiles. Now, fast forward, we will fast forward to something that happened in the 60s and 70s called the Jesus People Movement. We're familiar with that, right? In this explosion of Holy Spirit evangelism, in that called the Jesus People Movement, many young, secular, lost people, quite lost, came to believe in Jesus, and among them were many secular, young Jewish people. Sovereignly, suddenly, many, all of a sudden, believe in Jesus and find him as their Messiah. At first, they join the nearest church to them and hungrily learn all they can about Jesus. But soon comes a very widespread draw to many, many of them to grow deeper in the knowledge of their Jewish roots as they grow fuller in the knowledge of Jesus, whom they call Yeshua. And so instead of joining a church, they begin to form Messianic Jewish synagogues. Have you heard of that? Yes. And they begin to see and proclaim Jesus in the midst of their feasts. For instance, on Shabbat, when they light the Shabbat candles, they proclaim Yeshua as the light of the world. And when their Jewish brethren all around the world are reading the Torah portion, scriptures from the Old Testament that go through the whole year, they read those same scriptures, but add New Testament scriptures as well, because they have seen their Messiah. As Gino put it recently, they comprise a first fruits of the Jewish people worldwide coming to recognize their long-awaited Messiah. They are linked to us Gentile Christians by a knowledge of Jesus, and a love of Yeshua, but they are also linked to their Jewish brothers and sisters in their Jewish identity and practice. And the Messianic Jews that we know, Thomas and Amy and Shell and many of us, say that they stand like this, almost like a cross, because it's not easy for them, linked with one arm to the Jewish people, linked with the other arm to the church misunderstood by the Jewish people often, not fully understood or even known by the Gentile church. And so the Messianic Jews
used, how are they assigned to us? They're a sign of a way that God intended to constitute the church. A unity of diversity, somewhat like the Trinity, is a one made of three, and the church is a one new man with two pieces, but one piece has been missing from our eyes. <coughs> and so before I kind of summarize the points that I've made, I want us to stop here and listen to another revelation about Israel from Amy Cogdale. A very beautiful one in my estimation. It'll be different than what I've prepared, but I think it fits in the flow of God's love for Israel. Scripture is very interesting. It says, 
On the one side, on the Egyptians, it cast darkness, but on the Israelites, it cast light, like Jesus, who is the fragrance of eternal life to those of us who are being saved, but the stench of death to those who do not believe. So the angel of the Lord is there in the pillar of fire, the moon is rising, and the wind blows, the mighty wind, like the wind of Pentecost, it blows, it blows all night long. There are 600,000 men there with their wives, with their children. There's over a million people, and they are decked out in gold. They're decked out in gold because it's their wedding night, and each one of them asks their neighbors, and they're wearing gold, and the pillar of fire is flashing on their gold. And remember, these are slaves. They've never worn gold before, and they're looking at themselves, and whoa, <laughs> their gold is dancing, and the moon is rising, and the wind is blowing, and I tell you, no one slept that night. Not one person slept that night, and the wind blew, and it dried up the land, it stacked the waves, it dried up the land, and Moses said, start walking. They couldn't see the end, I don't think, but they started walking, they started walking. Scripture says that the Lord glanced out of the cloud, and he terrified the Egyptians, they were terrified because they could see him. And the scripture says this, he said, he said, oh, what does it say? I guess what basically says, we're terrified of the face of Israel, for the Lord is with them. The Lord and Israel were, were acting as one. Egyptians were terrified of the face of Israel because the eyes of the Lord glanced them. And that's how the Lord wanted to be. He wanted to be united with his people. Like that, so that when they saw Israel, they would see the face of the Lord. This was his desire. So I saw this beautiful scene, and I can tell you it was like nothing I had ever seen. The, the, the Exodus was the greatest spectacle this earth has ever known, and it will remain that way until Christ comes again. It was glorious. It was beautiful. It was unimaginably beautiful. After a while, my friend Caroline came in the room and sat down. And I said to her, I said an interesting thing. I said, Caroline, I saw the Passover. Technically, I saw the Exodus, but I said I saw the Passover. And I started weeping and weeping and weeping. And I've never, ever cried that hard in my life. I mean, I was like snotty like towels, I mean towels, <laughs> it was, I have never cried like that, and I said, Caroline, God loved Israel like a bride, and she didn't return his love, she wouldn't look him in the face, in the glory, and the beauty, she didn't understand the beauty on display, that was the tenderness of the Father, the tenderness of God for his people, and I wept because I could feel the vulnerability of God. I could feel he loved them. He loved these people. He wanted to be united with them. He wanted them to bear his name. He wanted his glory to rest on them. And they didn't understand his love. They didn't understand. And I, I wept because I, I just knew, I knew the Lord was sharing his heart for Israel with me. That, uh, an unrequited love. It was an unrequited love. And I, um, 
And I came to love him more in that place, his tenderness, his vulnerability, his faithfulness to his word. He was not letting go. Caroline and I stayed up and talked pretty much all night long. At 5 a.m., I said, I really need to go to bed because I have to get up at 6. <laughs> because the Lord wants me to go walk on the beach at sunrise. I just need this. So I did. I got up at 6. And I started walking and I just watched the sunrise and it was beautiful. Pink and gold, big clouds. It was just beautiful. And I walked into the, into the surf a little bit, a little ways out, just to watch. And I had tears in my eyes. And the man walks past. He passes me. And then he comes back. And he looks at me. He says, it's beautiful, isn't it? And I turned to him and said, yes, it is beautiful. He said, he said, it's the most beautiful day of the year. And I knew, I knew. I was not watching the calendar. I did not think about these things, but I knew it is Passover today. And I ran back to the house. I didn't have internet. I didn't have any way to check. I called my husband, Thomas, can you look up? Is today Passover? And so he looks it up at me and he says, oh, yeah, today is Passover, 2016. I said, yes, I knew it. <laughs> I think that that experience changed me so much in a number of ways. I love Torah now. And I love God in a way because I felt this burning, unrequited love. I know he has it for me, but he has it for Israel. And I know I felt like I stayed up in vigil with him on the night of his wedding with Israel. He remembers he remembers and he longs. And to love him, as Sandy said, means to love the things that he loves. And to love Israel is to enter into an intimacy with this God who is a burning lover. And it's a beautiful thing. So. Maybe 20 years ago, when Hope Chapel had a Saturday night service, a guest speaker came to speak. And part of what Amy has just shared, I think, was what he <coughs> illustrated to us. So it's a Saturday night. I don't remember exactly who he is. But he had been, sometimes I think it's Walter Heidenreich, but I don't trust my memory entirely. He had been speaking in some churches in Austin and San Marcos. And he told us that he had a sense that the pastors in this area were all of one posture, looking in a toolbox. They had a toolbox and they were looking down into the toolbox very intensely at the tools that were in the toolbox, holding them and turning them and arranging and rearranging them, all the while looking very intently at what they could build and God was dropping down over their heads a note from his heart, a love note, but they wouldn't necessarily look up. And I feel like what Amy has shared is something on a love note from God to us. 
In the Old Testament, if you read it again, or when you read it again, with new eyes, you'll see how many times God speaks of his love for Israel as a husband to a wife. He married her. He wed her. And what kind of a husband do you think God would make? Mm. Like Hosea. One who is faithful to the bride he took, even if she is faithless, or has been faithless at times. When Dan preached this sermon on the second coming on September 8th, we spoke a fair amount about those four themes. And regarding Israel, Dan said that he founded Hope Chapel on a study from Romans. He was teaching a Bible study on the book of Romans to a bunch of young people, Jack Dorman was one, and he said those particular chapters in Romans 9 through 11, from which we've looked at a couple of scriptures, he skipped because he felt there was a great deal of contentiousness over the issue of Israel. Too many different opinions, too many people who are looking at it from one way or another. And so he and I talked about the way to respond to what you would consider confusing, contentious points of view. Is it to make the topic a non-topic? Or is it to ask the Holy Spirit to make the topic a correct topic? So the answer to abuse, which we've all experienced in our lives as believers, abuse over a topic, even a topic like the second coming, that's part of what Dan was trying to say. If the second coming as a topic has been abused, that is, spoken about too much, or made too central a theme, we have two responses as a people. The response to abuse can be non-use, or proper use. And I feel like this love note from God dropped down from his heart it has both the second coming on it and it has God's enduring love for Israel on it. Obviously, it has other things on it. So now I would just like to summarize these points. I started by calling attention to those four themes from this Frenchman, Louis Dallaire, four ways that he saw that the Holy Spirit was preparing the earth for the second coming, revival and conversion of souls, the illumination of Israel, organic unity in the body of Christ, all leading to the second coming, and the resurrection of our bodies. And now I'd like to finish by talking about four ways that we might enter into and participate in the illumination of Israel. So the first is considering this resurrection of the one new man in the Messianic Jewish movement. After many centuries, perhaps 13 centuries, the lost Jewish portion of the church is visibly alive again. It was never completely missing but it's alive in numbers, numbers not that far away from us. The largest Messianic Jewish synagogue in the United States is in Dallas. 
And so, the one new man being alive again is part of the answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we may be one for unity in the body of Christ. Again, like the Trinity, we can rejoice in this, but it might be that it's hard to rejoice about it because we don't know much about it. How many of us have good friends who are Messianic Jews? How many of us know their story? How many of us know how they read scripture? So the question that I have is, is it worth learning about this? <coughs> when Thomas and Amy were doing the Wittenberg 2017 celebration in Germany, and starting from six years before of preparation time, at the very first meeting, and this was to be uh, a celebration if you were Lutheran, but for all of us, we were coming together to mourn the division that happened in the church between Catholic and Protestant at the time of the Protestant Reformation through Luther. We were coming together to mourn Lutherans and Catholics. Mm -hmm. And from the very first meeting, God gave us, God gave Thomas and Amy, Messianic Jews to be part of this. It was a bit of a surprise. Mm -hmm. But their presence was a great blessing because in the presence of Messianic Jews who have a tradition older than both Catholics and Protestants, there is a turning to one another and listening. And their presence brings a humbling and brings about a desire for unity, a new desire, and perhaps a new way in. Yes. So the question is, would it be good to learn about the existence of Messianic Jews? <coughs> their theologians are seeing things in scripture and bringing them forward that are really very fascinating and worthwhile in my opinion. So number one, the resurrection of the one new man as a sign to us of something precious to God about the constitution of the church. Number two, a restoration of a Ruth-Naomi relationship through recovering our essential link to Israel as grafted in ones to the tree, we can recover the loving devotion of Ruth to Naomi. So that a Holocaust in Christian Europe might never ever happen again. So that a Holocaust in Christian Europe might never ever happen again. And Adolf Hitler quoted Martin Luther in order to stir a kind of an animosity toward the Jewish people. Do you know that? So we can set our hearts on this. This is something we can set our hearts on. That will not happen again. We are linked as a Gentile people to Israel. We are linked to them in the love of the Father that is enduring. Number three, to prepare for the final triumphal entry. We can eagerly anticipate this day when Jesus will be recognized and desired and welcomed and wanted by his own flesh and blood kinsmen, as well as by us. Both things we can carry in our heart. Can we carry 
both things in our heart. And God will have removed the veil from Israel's eyes and will have kept his promise to give her a king to rule on David's throne forever, as well as us. We can watch and pray for this. We're probably familiar with the scriptures in Isaiah 62 that say, Watchmen, give him no rest. We use those scriptures a lot. Especially we, right, Rose? We who are intercessors, we often quote those scriptures. Watchmen give him no rest. But the rest of that scripture goes, until he establishes Jerusalem as a praise in all the earth. So we ask our Father to have no rest until he brings the full number of Gentiles into the body of Christ, until he brings the gospel to the ends of the earth, until he takes the gospel to every people, tribe, and nation. And we ask our Father to have no rest until he establishes his people, Israel, as a praise on the earth. And finally, the point I think that Amy brings forward so beautifully is that we celebrate our God in his character as a faithful lover. God's enduring love for Israel in that he hasn't rejected her and replaced her with the church. He hasn't punished her and replaced her with us. His enduring love for Israel in light of her failings and those are written for us in the Old Testament. We can read those because God preserved those for us. Israel's prophets preserved those for us to read. We don't have such a thing preserved for the history of the Gentile church. But if we did, we could probably read of very similar failings in the history of the Gentile church. That's right. And so if God is faithful to Israel to love her because he betrothed her forever, then he is faithful to us. If he keeps his promises to her, than to us. If to Israel, then to us as a church, and to us personally. Because God is a God who keeps his promises, this is his character. We learn of his character and his faithfulness to Israel. And I'll say one other thing before we end. Because Father Peter Hawken was such an important mentor to us, and I actually went to live with him for four months to try to discern whether I would move to Austria where he lives and become his personal secretary. But he is so brilliant in certain ways that he doesn't, he does everything better than the secretary. <laughs> and so what he really, really needed in terms of help was a housekeeper which I'm fair at, and a cook, which I'm fairly bad at. <laughs> I was not a good choice for his help, but I was good in this respect. He enjoyed having a sounding board, and I would sit alone with him at lunch and 
along with him at dinner and listen to him talk about these themes. As long as he wanted to talk, I would listen. Whereas the nun in his house, my good friend, Sister Mary Paul, who had to keep his house running, couldn't listen this long. She had to get up and do the dishes and make the beds and get the rooms ready for the guests who were coming the next day. So I sat and listened to him long. And he spoke to us of a very fascinating thing that's happening at the Vatican, which I'll just say. This opens my eyes in wonder, again, as Jolene said. Father Peter was instrumental in bringing Messianic Jews that he knows, leaders in the Messianic Jewish community, to, to meet the highest leaders in the Catholic Church. Pope Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, met with them. And Father Peter brought them to him to say, these are Messianic Jews. These are Jewish people who believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And this was a revelation to some in the highest places of the Catholic Church because they hadn't heard of this movement yet. It's fairly young. I mean, it's 40 or 50 years old now. But at that time, it was fairly young and not that well known. And Pope Benedict, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, is reported to have said, in response to meeting the Messianic Jews and hearing their testimony, how they grew up as Jews and they received revelation of Jesus as their Messiah, and now they love Yeshua and are linked to the church and linked to the Jewish people. His response was, if you are who you say you are, then this is an eschatological sign. Eschatological meaning a sign of the ends, of the end times, of God preparing the end times be they as long as they may be, because we can't predict that in any way, shape, or form, but it's a sign. And for at least a decade, there has been a dialogue in the Vatican between Messianic Jewish theologians and, and Vatican officials, one, I think, who is called the head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith. And they are dialoguing about what the Messianic Jewish theologians bring to the table, the way they read the New, the New Testament, the way they bring their Jewish promises into the New Testament. And they're dialoguing and listening to one another, but they have not wanted to make this dialogue official. They have not wanted to make it known. Because the presence of Messianic Jews can sometimes be felt as a threat to the Jewish community. Because the Jewish community could say, See, if, you, if you're friends with the Messianic Jews, you, you really just want to convert us all. You don't want to dialogue with us or know us or be linked to us. You have one purpose and one purpose alone. And so the church, all levels of the church, has been careful about this since the time of the Holocaust. But now is the time in this dialogue when the church, the Catholic Church, has decided it will now be official. Mm. It will now be known. We will now bring our link to the Messianic Jews who stand like this. We will bring their conversation forward and make it known. And so that is one of, uh, I think, the questions that I bring to us at Hope Chapel. Perhaps it is time to know about this portion 
of the one new man, to enter into a dialogue with it, perhaps this is the time. Amen. 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 Yes. PJ?
and the same kind of wonder that I received as we look into this mystery and we embrace your love for the nations and your love for your people, Israel.